It can be costly and time-consuming for nonprofits to fill vacancies. My colleagues at Dickerson Baker's executive search team can help. Serving nonprofits is not just part of what we do, it's all we do. The Dickerson Baker executive search team has the knowledge, expertise, relationships, and access to networks that are vital for recruiting exceptional talent. And not just that, we actually guarantee our placements for a full two years, which is much longer than anyone else in the nonprofit recruitment industry. Are you ready to find exceptional talent? Schedule a no-cost, no-obligation consultation at DickersonBaker.com. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, your home for all things fundraising and nonprofit leadership. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I've got a favor to ask. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate the show and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact in the world. So thank you in advance for doing that. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. This is Andrew Olson, and I am here with Tracy Thomas. So Tracy is the SVP of Advancement at Biblica. And prior to that, she's done a number of different things in, in the philanthropic world, including uh, holding a senior level role at Nature Conservancy, as well as serving inside a fundraising consultancy. Might just be the same one that I happen to work for now. Um, but we've, uh, we, we go back a little ways. Uh, I'm excited to talk with Tracy today about a topic that I think a lot of y'all are going to be interested in. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here today. Hey, it's always good to see you. Uh, before we before we jump into sort of our formal conversation, uh, if you would take a few more minutes and just tell us a little bit more about your background, who you are, um, what Biblica is, and what you do there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. So um, my wonderful, fabulous husband, Toji Thomas, and I live here in beautiful, sunny Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I really, really appreciate not shoveling snow anymore. Every time I say that, I get a little check in my spirit that God's going to make us move back to the snow. But we did enjoy that for 40 some years. So I'm grateful to be in sunny Florida. Um, we have three kids all in middle school. I appreciate your prayers for my um, just entering three teenagers in one house. Uh, lots of hormones and emotions. But it's a fun, fun days here. Um, and yeah, we... Um, Ministry life is our theme here. Uh, my husband and I um, started serving in different ministry capacities when we met at our church in Chicago, which is probably where I would still call home. They do get a lot of snow there, in case you didn't know. Um, <laughs> and we, um, we, uh, I came right out of college and started serving in nonprofits, not always Christian ones, as you mentioned in the intro. Um, right out of the gate, I worked for a day school in Chicago, and that really formed and shaped the trajectory of how I wanted to spend my career, frankly, because I was sitting at the feet, if you will, of Chicago's wealthiest families in a safe space that was their children's school and education. So despite how busy, powerful, globetrotting they were, they cared so much about their kids' education, and they were involved. And we worked on volunteer projects and fundraising projects in the community for that school. And what I saw there, um, concurrent to my own faith journey growing in that same time in my early 20s, was a um, was how wealth, the wealthy are not immune to the darkness of the world. And to a 20-year-old, that was an important thing because I didn't grow up in that economic class. And so I always thought the grass was greener on the other side. 
Um, but what I saw was the need for the hope of the gospel, the need for the freedom in Christ, the need for identity beyond necessarily titles or, um, you know, numbers and names behind your name. And so that made me really want to stick into nonprofit. And that's when I went, I ended up at the Nature Conservancy, which was an amazing place to grow as a uh, fundraising professional, um, learn from some of the best in the city and in the world on how to raise principal gifts, mega gifts from families across who care a lot about the world. Um, and then there just came a time in my life where I had that heart change and said, okay, God, I've learned a ton. How can I go? Um, how can we go take this now and apply it to the ministry context? So for the last 10 years, I've been serving um, in ministry context, first with a place called Bright Hope in the Chicago suburbs, and then now with Biblica for seven years. And Biblica um, is a lot older than my tenure. We are going to celebrate 215 years of ministry impact wow. in 2024. 215 which is years, hard to that's see. a ton. Yeah. 215 years. One of America's oldest um institutions, frankly. Wow. Um, we're up there with Red Cross and Salvation Army, and we were all kind of tried and true in the late, in the 1800s together. And so um, Biblica uh, is formerly the International Bible Society, previous to that, the New York Bible Society. Um, and so it's quite the shoulders of ministry we stand on, but the mission has stayed the same, which is to translate the Bible in formats that people can understand and have access to, and that mission is now global. So we steward the NIV, um, which is a big portion of our ministry, and it. But we also uh, sponsor translations around the world in seventy-one languages, I believe, major languages of the world. They are available now in an NIV-like context, so easy to read, understandable, contemporary language, so people around the world uh, can understand Scripture and be transformed by Christ's power. That's fantastic. So let's get into this now. Um, beyond sort of the where have you been uh, career wise, I, I want to talk a little bit about like your own, your personal leadership journey, right? How did you, how did you arrive at, you know, the, the role of senior vice president of advancement at Biblica? Like what were the, what are in your mind sort of the key milestones that, that you experienced in your career who were the people that opened the right doors for you? I mean, those kind of things. Talk to us a little bit about your your leadership journey versus just like general career. Sure. So <laughs> um, a couple different things to say about that. There was certainly, I have that vision that I think we all do if you're familiar with the Jerry Maguire movie of the person behind the desk kind of always quoting me, you know, how Jerry Maguire had these mentors through the movie that say, oh, this was what you should do with this voice. And I certainly have a few of those. One of them, um, the reason I even ended up in nonprofit work and fundraising, I didn't even know nonprofit fundraising was a thing. People did uh, when I was in college. I was pursuing a double major um, in business and journalism. I wanted to be a newspaper publisher. Really, really grateful I went a different path because the digital <laughs> age had not yet really come to pass at the time. Nope. <laughs> but in my... <laughs> but in those days, um, one of I was doing a work study job at a nonprofit, Big Brothers Big Sisters, and the executive director said, "You're really good at relationships." She said, "And that's what we need in fundraising. So you're really good at connecting with people, getting their story, understanding what they're passionate about, 
And that's really what fundraising is all about. And she put it in those simple words for me when I was, you know, 21. And I thought, gosh, I didn't even know I could make a career out of this, not knowing what a need there really was for fundraisers who liked their jobs, right? So <laughs> so that kind of began the journey. Um, but then when my faith became really important to me, um, I found myself sort of at this crossroads, you know, 10 years into this fundraising journey where God had really allowed me. And I will be very clear to say, like, Clearly, when he puts us on a, he calls us and puts us on a pathway, he puts us on a place that's like, this is the way, this is the way walk, walk in it. Right. Um, but in that, I, that for me was in the, in a, in a corporate role, a corporate NGO. And it was just really powerful to see how the world did something that I wanted to see take place in ministry. I wanted to say, I wanted to be able to say, look, if we can watch amazing generosity be poured out for really important missions that aren't necessarily gospel centric. And now my life is centered around gospel centricity. I want that to be the center of my life and purpose. Then what does that look like to apply some of these principles to ministry fundraising and see if it works? And so at that point, that was a big crossroads. And at that same time, I had been married and had some kids, three to be exact, (laughs) I had three kids under four, and it was just one of those, the world would tell me to go sit down. The world would tell me to stay home. The, 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 the outside opinions of our family at that time felt very clear to say, you have three kids under four. You don't get these days back. You need to spend time with them. And to, to which my husband and I very thoughtfully and prayerfully said, we don't agree. I mean, we agree these, all those statements are true, right? You don't get these sure. days back. Yeah. It is a formidable time but I, that I and he were both called to the marketplace. And so we made a decision then to have me stay, have my keep my head in the game. Um, less or so, I wasn't globe trotting or traveling or even working full time, actually. It was part time for a few years, but it was just really powerful to, um, to have to navigate that. And I look back on that now as a, you asked about like pillars and leadership. Where I mean, I remember working just to pay for childcare. Like at the end of the month, you know, what is it? There was more month than the money, if you will, right? Um, and it was my husband was a pastor at the time, and I was working for a ministry, and we literally were like, "Really, God, this is all this hard work, all this stress. We're missing out on things." I couldn't go to any of the mommy and me Bible studies on Tuesday mornings or Friday morning. I had no play dates. Like I didn't have any of the stuff I thought motherhood would be like of toddlers and babies. And I had exposure to some things. My, you know, grass is always greener. Other friends would say, well, that's amazing. You went to this meeting and you're planning a gala and you're doing all these cool things. But I was just pretty empty inside. And so I got to a place where I had to say, what is this like, God? And I... I very, and and through some counsel of some older women in my life, um, one of whom said to me, God gave you your children for your calling. It's not the other way around. And so I'll say that again, because it was really powerful. God gave you your children for your calling, not the other way around. And um, that was, that was really impactful to us because that, you know, it, it makes sense when you hear it, but when you're living it out and you can't pay the bills and you feel like nothing is this American dream picture we thought it was going to be, what do we do? And so we stuck those years out and stuck to that and then began to make very important decisions around that, right? Like not to say our children and our marriage, first and foremost, <laughs> my husband and I's marriage, date nights, time together, 
um, and then being with the kids. But with that led to promotion, right? With that led to expanded boundaries and onward and upward. And at the age of 36, I was offered the chief advancement officer role of Biblica, who at the time was a 205-year-old organization, um, where I've been now for seven years. And um, it was a pretty jarring experience. It was honoring to be offered the role, but also I did not look like anyone else in the room, um, uh, both in age and gender, <laughs> and, and uh, had to really think about what does it mean to be a female leader in a very predominantly, at the time, I'll say, predominantly at the time, um, white majority evangelical male space, being asked to really take lead be on the leadership team of this organization and also help help it become a major gifts-driven organization with, from, was really changing its entire framework of revenue. Um, and so it was, a, it was a big moment. And my husband and I both had to really talk turkey about what that meant travel-wise and time-wise, stress-wise. Um, and we decided to step in. And so for the last seven years, that has not um, I, I like to joke with my colleagues that the job I accepted at Biblica, my title, my title changed because we took the chief away and we're senior vice presidents now. That was just full stop across the board. My job hasn't changed. My job description hasn't been updated once, but the job is different every single year because we're growing so fast. Um, <laughs> it's like every year it's totally different. I have no cadence or rhythm to my leadership. It just gets bigger. That's the expected cadence and rhythm. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I hope that helps. So, it's just kind of a, yeah, yeah, no. So, so you know, I, I want to hone in on the the your your now seven years at, at Biblica because I suspect that you face some unique challenges, right? So, um, came in as really the only at the time senior level female leader um, into not just a, a faith based organization, right, but a what, what I what I would suppose is a very traditional ministry organization having, you know, 200 and some years of, of established history, right? There's like, there's a way that the organization does things, I suppose, right? And I, you know, you mentioned Red Cross and, and Salvation Army. I've worked with both of those organizations before. They will both say, we have a way we do things because we've done it for centuries, right? So I'm, I'm making the assumption that Biblica has a similar sort of way we do things. Um, what have been some of the the biggest challenges coming in, not just as someone, you know, from the outside, but someone who does, you know, look and is different than sort of the traditional model, if you will, for leadership. And then on the flip side, what have been some of the like most enjoyable things that you've experienced there too? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I would say first out of the gate is when I joined, it was, I said to the board um, at the time, I'll do this, but you have to commit with me that we're committing together that this ain't your mama's Bible society anymore. Mm. So, okay. the words and so who was that society. conversation with? That was with the then CEO and the board. Okay. Ain't your mama's okay. Bible society. Would you embrace that concept with me? And they were like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I'll know it when I see it. I got to get in and we've got to take a look at stuff and we've got to figure it out. But that it's, you know, ain't your mama's Bible society. And so I say that to say that has played itself out over the last seven years in various ways to your question. 
and including another another thing we use we like to say all the time is we're a 214 year old startup. So, <laughs> I mean, you can. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, put us in Silicon Valley some days. It's like we are trying to break down barriers to the Bible, and to break down barriers to the Bible looks different every not even every generation anymore. It's every five years with technology, maybe every three, maybe every two. It's getting this, the lifespan of new ideas is, you know, crunching itself down. And so we couldn't, so I felt immediately, I felt a dedication from the leadership that brought me in to committing to trying new things. Um, no sacred cows, if you will. And, um, and then also, knowing it when we see it and challenging the norms. And so we've just continued to push that envelope and it's walked itself out in a lot of different ways through the way we do events, through the way we put people on different platforms, for the way we try to uh, the way we try to address topics that typically are very polarizing in the church global sea church world. Um, to say, let's get different biblical perspectives because we're all here in ministry and in Global C Church because we believe in the truths of scripture, right? Well, Biblica has that sort of Switzerland opinion. Well, we just steward scripture. So we've got the truth. We help steward the truth. We help translate the truth and bring it accessible around the world. So we then have this platform available to us to say, let's just hear different opinions, right? That's what theologians do all day. So why can't we embrace that and help people see that? And then it's a pretty jarring expression when we tell people that, you know, close to 2,000 language communities in the world today don't get to have this conversation because they don't have scripture in their language yet. It's like mm. jaw-dropping and you have to try new things. Um, and so with that, another kind of ethos we say a lot around in um, the advancement team is that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible never changes, but the way we communicate about it has to, right? If it's not changing and growing in the way we communicate uniquely and innovatively about scripture, then we're going to lose a whole generation. And it's, and we are watching that play out, right? We're watching that play out and I won't go into all those things, but every every culture has a different way that's playing out with the next generation, right? Um, so, so spoken word artists, you know, partnering with um, hip hop Bible artists so we can reach a new generation, partnering with, um, you know, Christian rap artists on their shows to talk, communicate about Bible translation and the need for it. Um, in an advancement realm, some people may say, hey, that's really risky. Those young people can't, they're not going to be your big major donors. Oh, but wait, we know they're the major donors of tomorrow. And let's not box it in to say that they couldn't necessarily step in and be together in a crowdfunding way, pretty significant to the kingdom today, you know? Yeah. For sure. um, so we've been trying a lot of things. We've tried a lot of things in that, um, in that space. And have you, um, you know, oftentimes when I'm, when I, work with ministry organizations, we, we, we tend to see that there's sort of a, there's a corporate decision-making structure. And then there's sort of the rabble rousers who come in and, and are trying to make change. And, and those two things don't always align, right? There, there often is friction. 
Have you seen any of that or, or has that been a pretty, um, has that kind of been neutralized in the organization? Yeah, in the beginning, for sure. I mean, in the beginning, there was, what is this, what is Janie Newshoes trying to do, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think, I think, look, it all, you know, back to that, like, you got to be really good at relationships. So I think if you want to be a rebel rouser, which I'd put myself in that, in that category, ain't your mama's Bible society, are fighting words to a 207 yeah. year old organization, yeah. right? Sure. Them fighting words as they say. And so, um, but it was about trust and relationship. And so it's in theory, everyone embraced it, but then I know in an audio world, everybody can't see it, but it was sort of the hands up, stop. And then the other hand was saying, come kind of model. Right. And, um, when you go into that, I just had to sort of pause at different times and say, you know what, I just need to go sit with these board members, have dinner with them, hear about their families, let time bring us closer to how we can change the norm, right? Because just sort of yapping at each other about why our theory is better isn't going to get us very far. But sitting with each other, praying with each other, really getting into the the heart of why we're both at this table. And from their perspective, a volunteer perspective as a board member, right? They're not even getting paid to do this. They have other day jobs and just really understanding each other to say, let's give some stuff a try. And the board made some significant changes over those first years to say, we need to make sure the leadership aligns with an innovative next generation. Um, even through the recruitment of a, our current CEO who came in with a very empowering leadership style who said, Let's try new things. And he's always open to trying new things. I very rarely hear the word no come out of his mouth. He might say, give me more ROI examples of how this will work. What are the key <laughs> objectives? He'll ask good questions, Wait, but not, CEO not no. ROI come on. <laughs> I know. Who's heard of that? <laughs> so um, what but you're yeah. describing Go ahead. sounds a lot more like change leadership than philanthropy. Do you find that uh, uh, a large part of your day is is really spent more on on change than it is on like I, I think people hear advancement and they just think oh you must be asking people for money all day every day right but it sounds to me like while that's a component of it there's a lot more of like change leadership that you're doing as well yes and that's it's like water for my soul when you said that actually so to speak it over myself is just healing because absolutely. I am working daily in this, you know, 214-year-old startup to just change management every year. I mean, we've experienced 365% growth since I started from a revenue side. Wow. So there have been, so yeah, we've been raising money, praise the Lord. And we have, I have a great team who's out there doing that now. <laughs> and we, but in that growth, every year has required structure shift. I use the word mitosis a lot. Okay, guys, time for mitosis. That's when the cell has to break off, has to split, and become grow into new, new, uh, new strong structures or verticals in our world, right? And so I'm like, time for mitosising. I actually made it its own word because it's just become part of our culture. Okay, great. Something grew strong and big, needs to split off and do its own thing now because it's just the pace has been so much. So yes, change management all day long. Hey, we're advancing. If you're not growing, you're dying. Another one of my favorite mm -hmm. quotes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how do you, mm -hmm. 
how do you thread? And I know you said relationship, but I want you to talk a little bit more about this. How do you thread that needle between like, uh, and maybe we're different. I often look at it and I go, I just think I need to force that change, right? Um, but I suspect if if you if you already describe yourself as a rabble rouser, right? We, we're probably more similar than not in this respect. Like, as somebody in your seat, sometimes you just look at something and you go, No, I know how to do this. We just have to force this. You know, we have to turn this dial hard and fast to get this done. How do you thread that needle while still being sort of honoring and deferential to the culture that maybe is not used to moving that fast and and to the long-term relationships that um, that could get damaged if if you turn those dials too quickly? Like what, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say right now in our con- in my context, we have surrounded ourselves with leaders, mid-level managers, team, just teams in general who are ready for change to the point where we've even put it in our job descriptions, like fast-paced environment, lots of growth and change, because we were learning that if we tried to thread the needle the way, because there were different levers to pull. There's the hurry up, we got to do this lever. And then there's the, okay, this one's a slower roll. And we would have to act on discernment to figure out which lever to pull. But man, when you get into this high pace, like upward hockey stick growth that we've had the last couple of years, um, that you just have to then begin to recruit people that you can, to your point, pull people together and say, um, we've got to move fast and everybody, nobody's eyes get really big anymore like they used to because you'd have some people on the team who just want to do the same thing every day, not have a change. They're fabulous at their job, but the growth and change, the mitosis thing stresses them out, you know? And um, frequent mitosing stresses them out. So that's definitely been difficult. Um, And then from a faith perspective, I just have to say, like, all of this has to flow out in a faith, in a faith context. It has to flow out of like your own personal peace, your own personal discernment, prayers. Um, When I come into a stressful situation where I have, where mitosis is required and sometimes really tough mitosis, that you know is required. It's that challenging leadership decision that you're like, I wish I could play press fast forward and just beat over over the other hump, side of the hump on this. If I come at, at that with a side of fear, um, with an air of fear or an even timidity, it falls so flat, right? Um, and I've had to learn that as a leader, people want confident, but they want to see you in a ministry context. They want to see humble. And, and even deeper than that, in a very conservative, conservative, traditional, to use the word you used earlier, environment, which even if our staff is changing and our board has changed, even their perspectives, we still have a constituency, right, that we've had for 50, 60 years, some of them, right, who expect a certain, expect a certain error to come from our externally facing advancement team. And so... I've said often too, when you work in Bible ministry, you sit in someone's living room talking about their gift to your ministry, they treat you almost like a pastor because you represent the Bible. You're not representing other amazing causes. Yeah, like it's not water relief or, you know, sex trafficking or something like that. It is like scripture. (laughs) And so it's it's definitely been a, it has to be approached from that place of peace, prayer, humility, but then of course, confidence. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what, when you talk to counterparts in other organizations, particularly, I'm curious about, you know, some of the, 
other female leaders in, in, in faith-based organizations that you might network with, do they have similar experiences or, or if not, like what, what major differences do you see that, that we could learn from? Yeah. So I've spent a lot of time networking in this space in the last couple of years as we've grown so much. And as I began to see some of these, um, these challenges I was experiencing and you know, when you start to get in challenges, you want to, you start to peek, peek around and think, okay, is this just me or do I have to change something <laughs> or is this endemic or is this just a theme? And then of course, being the rebel browser that I am, Andrew, I'm like, and how can we make a difference? So in that discovery, I joined both um, some faith-based women who work tight women in leadership groups, and then also some secular ones um, that were really great. And the stories were the same everywhere I went. It was astounding. It was astounding. I mean, I was in a cohort with um, 10 amazing women for the last 12 months, all from different parts of the world. And we all were um, in leadership positions and had the same exact insecurities, concerns, worries about our team, thoughts about our CEOs, I mean, boards, you name it, from corporate nonprofit. And so it really kind of one of those things that make you go, hmm. Um, and so one of the principles that I'll share today is about the double bind in women's leadership. And so the double bind in so the double bind in women's leadership is around the concept that women cannot be both competent and likable at the same time. So um, it's that they can be, they're either one work, one cannot work in equal tandem with the other. So if you're competent in a scenario, you are um, neglecting your likability. And then if you're likable in a scenario, you have to neglect your competency. And it, that, those three sentences I just shared alone sort of were this massive aha for me about um, challenges I've had in my leadership. Um, the likability goes to not fitting in to the point that I don't look always like everybody else in the room, the leadership table in Bible ministry space. They're changing it. They're working on it. Um, it's not a malicious thing. It's just many different parameters have made that happen. Um, and so with that, though, and, and we all want to be liked, right? Well, in our leadership, we want our teams to like us. Um, we're people pleasers. Um, you know, at our core, we want people to like us. But when you combine that with competency and knowing you're suited to do the job put before you, you're suited to manage the things ahead of you, um, typically for a female, the gender biases kick in and we aren't always viewed as able to do both at the same time. So for example, you're like, you're probably thinking, Andrew, what does this actually mean? So say, for example, you're on a team and you watch um, a leader make significant changes to team structure. Maybe some people have to get released because of tough revenue challenges, et cetera. If it's a Typically, again, in a stereotypical scenario, <laughs> um, no, 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 no names inside, but in a stereotypical scenario, the, um, if that leader was a male and if it was handled really well, if with clarity, kindness, decisiveness, strategic um, thought, the comment might be, 
um, that was really strategic. That was really hard, but navigated well and with excellence and really strategic move for the future of the business, right? Typically, stereotypically, on the other side, if the leader was female, there is a risk in those scenarios that the group would talk more toxically about it, perhaps use words like, she's very passionate instead of strategic, right? Um, when someone talks about like, uh, an act, like when someone, when a woman kind of expresses her opinion in a way that she's just very vehement about or feels strongly about instead of, wow, they're really um, decisive. It's, oh, they're very passionate. Or, you know, if a woman fires someone, dragon lady will come out. Or there's the dragon lady. We knew she must have been in there somehow to get to where she's been. Again, these scenarios well, are not my scenarios. These are scenarios I've heard. Yeah, yeah you, you didn't say this word, but I'm going to say it. I, I, I think passionate is coded language for emotional, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. She's too emotional. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So exactly. it's so interesting that you brought this up around, you know, sort of a change initiative because I actually led, co-led a change initiative, very significant, uh, at a, a for-profit organization. And my business partner in that change initiative was a highly capable female leader uh, who now is a senior vice president at an executive search firm and is one of the most brilliant people I know. Um, and I would walk into another, you know, chaotic, crazy situation like that with her any day because she delivers. Um, but the the perspective and the way people talked about the two of us in that environment was almost exactly what you said, right? So wow. when they talked about me, it was, oh, this is transformational, blah, blah, blah. But people actually would attack her, even though we were doing the exact same thing, right? And and we were, we were literally co-leading the project. And uh, she took more arrows for it than I did. I, I don't have any other reason to assume than because of that perception based on, you know, the gender difference. Right. Um, but, you know, completely like if you looked at it just on paper and you didn't know who the two people were, we were doing the exact same work. Right. But, but there was definitely a difference in the way people perceived it and talked about it. So, just, just an example of one, but I, a, a validating example for sure. Thank you. Yes. And again, yeah. it's not to say that any, like, as I speak in, to the hearing of my voice, it's the people, the men I've worked with have always been really supportive in the space and any job I've ever had. It's unfortunately these gender biases that just find their way into your water cooler talks. They find your way into the boardroom itself. Where even yep. thinking about change management and gender bias in this double bind, it's like, if I am not nurturing and relationship led, which is what I told you was my chosen method to build trust yep. in the beginning, there was a day where it had to turn from nurturing and relationship led to no, this is what I suggest we do for success, right. kind of fist pounding. It's like, whoa, 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 where'd that come from? I have experienced right. that. You know, yep. where, did, where did all that come from? I'm like, my presentation right now is nothing different from my male colleague who just gave you a three-year strategic plan. This is the corresponding right. revenue drivers. And it's like, wait, you want to hire all those staff and we need to do all these things? And oh, gosh, wow. And it's like, this is what it's going to take, friends, you know? <laughs> so yeah. so it's, it's, really, it's really intriguing. So and what? And in the oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. 
I was just going to say, in the ministry context, if I could, mm-hmm. so that's a double bind in with women leadership. Catalyst has done a lot on this and have, has a great write-up on it um, on their website. Um, and then, like I said, in these cohorts of both um, women in ministry and not in ministry, we all feel the same way. The thing I feel that is extra unique to female leaders in, in women, sorry, excuse me, what is unique to women leaders in ministry leadership is that we want to lead like Jesus too, right? And so we're trying to lead from that faith motivator and it's it's even extra hard because we're not only take bringing, we only, I only can speak from experience, but I have only had to manage gender biases from the boardroom and the water cooler, but also from the church. So it's like a multi-layered expectations that have been put on me for the last 20 years of being in the workplace both in my church roles and both in my um, ministry leadership roles, but have all culminated significantly in the last couple of years as I've navigated success as a female in a traditionally conservative space. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. So we have time for like two more questions. I want to get at these these two real quick. Um, the first one is, what do you what do you wish or or, or what do you want to share? with, you know, male leaders in the faith space that you wish they understood about, you know, how best or how to effectively engage strong female leaders that that gets us all further faster? Sure. Well, I mean, I would say, first of all, everybody listening probably has somebody in mind. They're like, that's a fantastic female leader that I trust. And I've worked with, like you said, Andrew, someone that you know you've worked shoulder to shoulder with or just know from afar. And my very, very first recommendation is go have a conversation with them. Um, I know what, I mean, some of my best exploration and healing on this topic has been through men who have said to me, have I ever hurt your feelings in a room Mm. before? And then I, I've been able to say, yes, let me start, let me count the ways. And in, 100% of those situations, the men were so sad that they had done that. And we're so grateful that we had just had a transparent, right, trust-driven conversation around what made a difference. And so um, (laughs) some, I'll give you like two takeaways from that couple of those conversations, just as quick tips today. The first one is just pay attention to the words you use in conversations Um, it's endemic in our society to say things like, Hey guys, like I even say it, (laughs) but when you say, Hey guys, you don't alienate and I don't feel alienated necessarily, but it's just something in your heart. You can change to, Hey friends, Hey comrades. Hey, I don't know. Something that doesn't imply a gender at all. Um, everybody you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I even do it. I say, Hey guys, and I have to stop. Right. It's just endemic. Right. Um, Another one that just, it's really big in the ministry space, and I just would love for it to die a very quick death, is when men say, just between us girls, I mean, come on. Hmm. (laughs) What the the spirit is, is like, I'm about to gossip now, so I'm going to say, just between us girls, so let me gossip. That's implying your female counterpart is always gossiping. And A, that all women as a whole are always gossiping. Um, and so let's break down some stereotypes. And I liked, I have called out a few of my 
favorite, favorite men coworkers in the past and said, oh, sweet friend, you don't have the privilege of being a girl. So don't ever say that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> risked, risked my, uh, risked my likability factor. Right. But, um, there we go. And then, um, so that's the first piece. So just pay attention to your words, things that have become habit to you that maybe you can just switch up in your own heart and then as it's received from people around you. And the second part, second one would be consider the topics of conversation you choose with your female counterparts. So part of this conversation with this trusted leader who, um, gosh, we'd both probably lay down on a train track for each other. I just, he's an awesome man, leader. Um, when we had this conversation, I said to him, hey, what is the first thing you always ask me after I haven't, when, when we're first face-to-face after not seeing each other for a while, what is the first thing out of your mouth? And he sat, thought about it and he said, how are the kids? And I said, great, now I love my children and I am happy to brag about them and their soccer accomplishments and sheer accomplishments all day long. But let me ask you this. Do you ask, and I pointed to my coworker who was a male, do you ask him how his kids are? Is that the first thing out of your mouth when you see him after not seeing him for four or five months? He said, nope, sure isn't. I say, how's Biblica? How's fundraising? How's your team doing? What are some challenges in leadership you've been having? What Share with me. What's going on? And yeah. I thought his face went white when he realized I do this all the time. And he self-admittedly said the only women I really engage with, because there aren't a lot of us up there at the top, are in my church. So it's in a church context, you know, where he yeah. is asking the church-like friendly, you know, and I get For that. Sure. But I just challenged him. Think of a more strategic question to ask me around the identity yeah. from which I know you in this context. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a really fascinating one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question for you before we, we break for the day. Um, think of all the women who are just starting their careers, right? Who are, you know, in their first professional job, just starting their journey in a faith-based organization or any other organization, um, maybe a male-dominated community. What do you want to say to them? What's the advice? What's the, you know, the, the knowledge that you've gained over time that you want to impart to, to that community of, of future female leaders? Yeah, I would have two pieces of advice. The first one is be solid in knowing what your calling is. Um, I think like, like all men and women, we all know how to get our play, ourself. We strive too hard sometimes towards things motivated by the wrong piece. Um, I've met with too many women um, who, especially in the ministry space, way too many women who have been divorced, lost their marriages, um, have kids in deep challenges based on choices that they now say, you know, they're years ahead of me in life and leadership. Say, if I had made different choices when I was climbing the ladder, I would have seen this differently. And I think men alike can say that, right? So we are uniquely suited as women that we can do many, many things that we choose to do. I do believe that. Um, but what, what really matters on the final days of your life that you look back and say, this really mattered. Um, so know your calling is my first one. And then my second one is know your calling. 
and go do it. <laughs> because for me, <laughs> I knew that I was meant to be in top levels of leadership. I didn't know exactly what that was when I was 25, but I felt very yeah. clear that I was meant to be a leader. Um, never would have said I was a change leader, Andrew. I might change, I might change my title now, but, um, and I just knew my calling and I knew all those other ingredients such as who God had ordained for me to marry, who's a very supportive partner in everything I do as am I to him in his career. And the same with my kids. Like I said before, your kids are for your calling, not the other way around. I had to lean into those truths on the days when things were really hard and the norms seemed a lot easier than the path that I was walking. Yeah, that makes great sense. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for the honest conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, if somebody's listening to this and says, gosh, I really just want to talk to her more, what's the easiest way for people to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. I would say um, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, they're all fantastic. And I can, um, Tracy Albertson Thomas is what I go by on most of those. And so it's, I would love to hear from you, DM me, and I'd love to talk more about this and hear from you, encourage you and keep you in the game. <laughs> awesome. And how can people connect with Biblica? Um, yes. If you're interested in Biblica, please go to Biblica.com. Um, read more about us. Check out some videos of impact on our website. And also you can follow Biblica on Instagram um, and Facebook and catch, up, catch more of us there and stay in touch with us on a regular basis. Awesome. Thank you again, Tracy. Thank you, Andrew. It was great. Thanks again for joining us today for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review so we can get our message out to more nonprofit leaders. And as always, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or at andrew at andrewolson.net. Be well, friends.